I want to test that theory that the spirit, the grace is an attribute of God. So what I, we got a lot to talk about. I'm going to try to get through it. We're going to make six observations from the Bible. And if I'm wrong, Warren is just going to take over for me anyway. He's already. All right, let's start with where I started off last week, what I said last week. First observation is last week we looked at what grace does, what grace does. Remember we looked at not all the times that grace, what does grace actually do? By itself, not how do we react to grace, not that we fail to obtain grace, so we, no, no, no. What does grace actually do? There are nine things. I said, look at this, I'm, I'm tripping. I said nine things. <laughs> Where's Cat Williams at where you need him? That man said, all right, nine things. We're not going to look at all those scriptures again, but I'm going to say what they are because we have a lot to talk about. Y'all heads are going to explode when y'all leave today by the grace of God. All right, nine things that the, that the Spirit, the grace does, that the grace does. Nine things. Romans 3, 23, 24, grace justifies us, right? Grace justifies us. Romans 5, 21, grace reigns in us. Ephesians 2, 8, grace saves us, right? It's by grace you have been saved, right? Grace gives us different gifts, Romans 12, 6. Grace works in us, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Grace is sufficient in suffering. Remember Paul? Pray, take the stone away. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That wasn't just for Paul. That was for all of us. There are times when we pray and God's like, no, I got you. I got you. I'm not changing the circumstances. I'm changing you. That's a different message. I don't want that today. Y'all better stop saying that because I'm going to be like Warren just saying, just going off the, I forget this whole message and we go down a whole. All right. Grace strengthens us. 2 Timothy 2.1. Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, Titus 2, 11 through 13. And grace can be multiplied in us, 2 Peter 1, 2. What I said last week, which I stand by today, is that all nine of these things that grace does are actions the Holy Spirit does. If you were to replace each of these words with the Holy Spirit, it would make perfect sense. The Holy Spirit justifies us, reigns in us, saves us, gives, gives different gifts to us, works in us, is sufficient in suffering, strengthens us, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions that can be multiplied in us. We can be filled with the Spirit, right? These are all things that grace does. But this doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is the grace of God. So why else do I believe the Spirit of God is the grace of God and not just an attribute of God? Second observation. Second observation, the language given to grace in the Bible, all right? I mentioned this last week, so let me double down. The language of grace, there are three primary ways the word grace is used in the scripture, three primary ways. The first is a greeting, right? You'll see this from Paul, grace to you, right? Grace to you, it's a greeting. Could be blessings to you, but it's grace to you, it's a greeting. The second way grace is used is often meaning blessings and favor. Right? You could replace the word grace with blessings and favor. And the third way that grace is used is the Holy Spirit. So these are three ways that grace is used. But the language given to grace is something different. Case in point, Hebrews 4, 16. 
It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are no other places in scripture where an attribute is raised to the status of having a throne. There's none. I've looked at every time the word throne was used in the Bible, and there is no other attribute, supposed attribute of God, that is elevated to the status of throne. None. But feel free to do your own work. There's none. Now, grace could just mean favor and blessing here. Let's read it as if it were saying that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of blessing and favor that we may receive mercy and find blessing and favor to help in time of need. Sounds okay. Sounds okay. But here's a question. If grace and mercy are just attributes, right? If grace is an attribute and mercy is an attribute of God, why would one attribute be on the throne and not the other? If grace is an attribute, why would grace be on the throne but not mercy? And then why would one attribute give us another attribute? Why wouldn't we just get grace and that'd be good enough? Why wouldn't blessing and favor be enough? Why does grace have to give us mercy? Now, I can see if it said approach the throne of love, right? Because we know that love is patient, kind, all it, right? It covers a multitude of sins. Like, love does a lot. But this says approach the throne of grace. There are no other places in Scripture where an attribute is raised to the status of having a throne. So how does this prove that the Holy Spirit, this could be referring to the Holy Spirit, that, grace, that the grace of God is the Spirit of God? This doesn't prove that, does it? Good question. In Revelation 4, we see two times that the Spirit is connected to the throne. Revelation 4, 5 says this, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So at the very least, we know that the Holy Spirit is in proximity to the throne where God the Father is sitting. It says it's before the throne because the Father and the Son, they don't all share the same throne. They're not like, hey, scoot over. <laughs> right? When it's, you know what I'm saying? God like, man, school, hey, Jesus, man, you getting a little plump around here, bro. Nah, it's like they don't share the throne. But like by saying that it's before the throne, it's saying essentially it's on the throne with God. Figurative language attributing the spirit to being on the throne. Revelation 5, 6. And before the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. So here is the throne, Jesus right beside the throne, 
with the Holy Spirit, and it describes them as seven horns. Horns in the Bible just, just means strength. Seven being perfect, so it's saying there's Jesus with the Holy Spirit in per with perfect strength, right? Seven eyes, meaning wisdom, with perfect wisdom, which are the seven spirits of God. So here, the Holy Spirit by the throne again. The Lamb is beside the throne with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is, is designated as a close proximity to the throne. You will not find in any other credible translation of the Bible where an attribute is given status of a throne in reference to God except grace. You won't find it. You can look. Please look. Please look. Don't. Please look. I've searched. Not every translation, because after a you know, we only got so much time. We, but I've looked enough. You will not find it. Throne of grace is intentional. Whenever throne is mentioned in reference to God, especially in Revelation, it's always the Father, sometimes Jesus, and two times the Spirit. However, in Scripture, we don't see things sitting on thrones in heaven. You see people only. You do not see things on the throne. So in Revelation, which is where we get the view of where God is, besides Ezekiel and Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7, you don't see things on the throne. You see actual people. You don't even see created beings on the throne. They're described as people. We get God on the throne. You get 24 elders that are on thrones. We assume there's some kind of humanoid creation. We don't know what it looks like, what they look like. You get the apostles, the 12 apostles, 11, not Judas. He didn't make it. But Paul takes his place. The apostles sit on thrones. Jesus promises to let the church in Laodicea, people who persevere, to sit on his throne in Revelation 3.21. It's his people. And Jesus on the throne. Nowhere in scripture is a non-person given the title of throne. So throne of grace, if it's not a person, an attribute, Hebrew 4 would be the only time in all of the Bible that that happens. Because grace is not an attribute of God. Grace is the spirit of God. The language of throne. Now let's look at the language of spirit. Hebrews 10, 29 says this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Capital S. Okay, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Whenever capital S is used in the scripture, it always means the Holy Spirit. There's, I looked at every occasion in the Bible, in the ESV translation, when capital S is used, only the Holy Spirit. Never not the Holy Spirit. Now, there may be times where it's not used and it's pointing to what the Holy Spirit might do. 
Never once in the Bible when capital S is used, it does not refer to the Holy Spirit. So in Hebrews 10, 29, God is saying that people who were believers that walk away from the faith have outraged the spirit of grace. Message is done. Let's go watch the rest of the Cat Williams interview. No, no, no. I got, I got receipts. Y'all know me. I go shopping. I got more. We'll come back to this. Here's an indication where the capital S isn't used, but listen to the language it describes of the Spirit. Zechariah 12.10. We looked at this last week. There's a prophecy, right? Right towards the end. Zechariah and Malachi, last two books of the Bible. Remember that I said this. Zechariah and Malachi, last two books of the Bible before the New Testament. Remember, what, remember that I said this. This is an important point later in the message. And if I forget it, ask in the Q&A. Zechariah and Malachi, last two books of the Bible. All right? Here's Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Some translations say a spirit of grace and supplication. Right? Pleas for mercy, supplication is what? Prayer. Right? So saying, I'm going to pour out a spirit of grace and prayer. So that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. All right, so remember, here's what it says. This is a prophecy in the Old Testament. That God's going to pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, supplicate in prayer. So that, here's why, I'm going to pour out this so that when they look upon him who appears, they will mourn and weep bitterly. All right? That's what he's saying. Here's what John 19 says, 34 through 37, right? says this. This is at the end of the Jesus dying. Here's what it says. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Right? So it's quoting from Zechariah 12.10. But as far as we know, there was hardly anyone at the cross when Jesus died. It was his mom. John was the only apostle that was there, the only disciple. Uh, Mary Magdalene. And the mother of James and Joseph. I think her name is Mary, too. So there's a lot of Marys around there. There was no one mourning Jesus' death but them. So Zechariah 12, 10 cannot be the Lord is going to pour out spirit of grace and prayer so that the four people who were before the cross would weep and mourn. Judas was also mourning after he realized he betrayed Jesus, but he doesn't count. The mourning and weeping bitterly is connected to the spirit of grace being poured out, right? That's what it says. Well, the spirit wasn't poured out at the cross. It was poured out at Pentecost. At Pentecost. So let's go to Pentecost and see what happened. Because it doesn't say in John 19, it says, and the, the scripture might be fulfilled that one of his bones will be broken. And then it says, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they appears. It doesn't say that was fulfilled in the crucifixion. It just says another scripture says that. 
So let's go to when the spirit was actually poured out in Acts 2. Let's see what happens. We're going to skip around in Acts 2. Verses 1 through 4 first. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right? So here the Spirit's poured out in Acts 2, Pentecost. Let's go down to Acts 14. Acts 2, verses 14. And it says, but Peter, standing with the 11, because there was some commotion, people were like, how are these people that I know are not from us speaking in our language? They couldn't figure out, like, what is going on here? How do I, I know they're not from where I'm from. How are they speaking my language? So Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and arrested and addressed them and said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as some of you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Right? So I think it's like 9 a.m. And people were like, man, these folks are twisted. Like, look what they. So getting drunk makes you learn other languages? Like, that's crazy. If that's the case, a lot of people would be, be drunk. You just drink and then speak whatever language you're from, wherever city you is. And he said, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Job. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Let's jump down to verse 32. Verse 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's skip down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now keep in mind, when he said that, Jews were coming from all over the world. They weren't all even there when this happened to Jesus. They, some of them were like, what is he talking about? We heard about this, but... But he's saying you crucified him because it was your sin that he died for. And look at their response in verse 37 of Acts 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, and they said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Their mourning over him who they pierced didn't start till here, Acts 2. Before that, no one was mourning over Jesus. Zechariah 12.10 was not talking about what happened at the cross, but what would happen after people connect the dots and realize that it was them. So now there's a, there's a spirit of grace and prayer. The cut to the heart happens here in Acts 2 after the spirit's poured out. People weren't mourning before then, except for John and, and Mary Magdalene and them. Then it uses the language, so it's spirit of grace and then spirit of pleas of mercy, right? Supplication of prayer. Intentional language. Spirit of grace and prayer. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for, as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts 
knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit, please, in mercy, supplication, the Holy Spirit prays for us. That's part of his job. That's part of his job. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 2. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you pray that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands them, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. So when you speak in tongues, that's praying by the spirit in the spirit. That's part of the spirit's job. So when Zechariah 12 says, God, I'm going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication or prayers, he's saying that's going to be the Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace and prayer. Is that all you got, Pastor Kurt? Nope. I got receipts. I'm the Cat Williams of theology today. We exposing all of it. So why do I believe the spirit of God is the grace of God and not just an attribute? Evidence, number three. Make sure you know, the first one, because people say, what was the first point? That grace does what the Holy Spirit does. The nine things that grace does, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's number one. Number two, the language given to grace, throne and spirit, right? Especially throne. Spirit is some other things. We'll get to that in a second. Especially throne. But spirit of grace, capital S. All right, here's number three. Third observation. The absence of the concept of grace until later in the Bible. All right, if grace is an attribute of God and presumably one of the strongest, many of us would think the grace of God is like, whoa, that's... If the grace of God is an attribute of God and one of the strongest, why is it relatively absent until the New Testament? It's relatively absent. God didn't show up in the New Testament. Grace is absent almost, seemingly, until the New Testament. I told you this last week. Last week I mentioned that there were 131 times that grace was used in the Bible, at least in the ESV translation. Six of those times were in the Old Testament. Six. But grace is the attribute of God, the attribute of attributes. It's without grace, it's by grace that we're saved. But in the Old Testament, it's only mentioned it six times. Do you know how many verses are in the Old Testament? Over 21,000. Over 21,000 verses in the Old Testament. And grace is mentioned six times. Let's read all of them. Esther 2. Mm-hmm. Esther 2, 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women. Esther was fine, y'all. That's what he's trying to say. And she won, <clears throat> she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that she set the royal, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. That has nothing to do with God, right? It just says that she won grace. Next verse, Psalm 45, verse 2. 
You are the most handsome of the sons of men. And some dudes applying this verse like, man, God believes that I'm. It's like, nah, fam, God wasn't talking. You know how people be taking the Bible out of context? Wasn't talking to you, fam. You ugly dude, fam. You just got to have game. You got game, you can do it. You got to have game. You got to have game. Confidence. Women like that, man. You get in a car accident, it'd be a good-looking dude getting in a car accident. Now you're just thinking that way. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Don't think God is saying, I'm pouring myself on your lips, fam, because you look that good. Now, women may think like, wow, there's grace on his lip, but that's different. That ain't nothing but lip gloss. All right, Psalm 86.6. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Okay? That sounds more like what we used to. Jeremiah 31, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. Zechariah 4.7. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. All right, we can start doing that. JP, we write a song, grace, grace to it. Zechariah 12, 10, that we know, right? Pour out the spirit of grace. These are the only times that grace, the actual word grace is mentioned in the Old Testament. But it's supposed to be one of the most dominating attributes of God that is relatively absent in the Old Testament. That doesn't make sense to me. You'll have gracious and graciously used 59 times, 51 in the Old Testament, 8 in the New. Four times the word graceful is used, three in Proverbs, one in Nahum. That's it. But in the New Testament, grace shows up 125 times. 125 times. But guess what? Only three of those times are in the Gospels. So if grace is an attribute of God and it's not, and Jesus, right? The Bible points to Jesus. Where's Wendy at? Jesus. A, if you wasn't at the retreat, you just, if you know, you know. Three times in the Gospels, grace is used. That's it. I couldn't believe it. Here are the three times. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember when the Bible was written. Remember when these people wrote the Bible, right? They wrote this looking back decades later. They're not writing this as it happened. They're writing it after grace, the spirit has come. They're all reflecting back on everything. So when it says stuff like grace came through Jesus Christ, it's true. Didn't Jesus introduce the spirit to people? Remember when the Bible was written? Grace is used three times in the Gospels. That's it. These verses. If grace is an attribute, why is grace not a fruit of the Spirit? You will not find in a credible translation grace being named as a fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at some of the popular verses that highlight. Let's go to the tape. 
Galatians 5, 22 and 23, right? We know this well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's also no grace. Grace is not mentioned. If it's an attribute of God and we're supposed to get attributes and be like God, then why isn't grace mentioned? If it's an attribute of God, we're supposed to be like God, then why isn't grace mentioned? Because all these are attributes that God has. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Grace is not mentioned here. Let's go to Colossians 3, another passage that highlights attributes you should have. Beginning in verse 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if it has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Where does it say put on grace? Where does it say grace? Here. If grace is an attribute, like most people teach, where is it at? Let's go to Ephesians 4. Maybe I'm missing something. Let's go to Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you read the rest of the chapter, you will not find grace as an attribute that you and I should imitate because it's an attribute of God. But all the other attributes that we can imitate, we should. And there's things about God we can't do. We're not omniscient, right? We're not all-knowing. We're not omnipresent. We're not everywhere at one time. We're not. With these other attributes, let's go to 2 Peter 1. List a bunch of attributes. Let's see if we can find grace. Beginning in verse 5, 2 Peter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. You see, love is everywhere, right? Love is an attribute of God. Love is in every one of these verses. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will not find grace, one of the most significant descriptions of the character of God in the New Testament, as a singular fruit of the spirit that we need to imitate. So if grace is an attribute, then why are we not told to imitate it? I could be wrong, though. Gracious as a command is stated only once in Colossians 4, to be gracious. Here's what it says. Let your speech always be gracious, right? Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here it's clear your, 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 the grace should be, you know, with mercy and favor and gentleness. And grace is not a fruit of the spirit because grace is the spirit. And it interacts with us through his character and function, which is grace. Is that all you got, Pastor Kirk? Nope. Number four observation. Here's a fourth observation. So the third was the absence of the concept of grace. It's striking to me how little grace is until the Spirit's poured out. After the Spirit's poured out in Acts, grace is everywhere. It's in Romans everywhere. 
It's all over the New Testament after the Spirit's poured out. But before then, bits and pieces. Three times in the Gospels, six times in the Old Testament, that only one of them connects to having to come from a do with God. That's challenging if grace is an attribute. So is that all you got? No. Fourth observation. A few historical heavyweight theologians agree with me. When I came to all this stuff, I, look, this, let me tell you, just so y'all know, when this stuff happens, when I feel the Lord is revealing to me this stuff, I'm always like, nah, Lord, no way. No way. And then I'll be like, why are you telling me this stuff? I'm just a regular old dude from the DMV. Sometimes I weep because I'm just like, this is ridiculous. But then I'm like, nah, this, nah. And I'll ask people, hey, have you heard this? I'll, I have friends that be like, you know what? And I'm like, okay, nah, then this ain't from the Lord. Then I'm just tripping. <laughs> I'm not going to just get up here and say something on Sunday and be and in the Q&A. Hey, Pastor Kurt, I saw this. And I was like, won't, 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 won't. Like, I'm not doing that, right? So I was just like, nah, Lord, I, ain't, I mean, this is a good thought. This is crazy, but let me just see. Is there anybody else who even thinks like this? And I came across this quote from Reuben Torrey, heavyweight theologian in the early 20th century, wrote a book called The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit as Revealed in the Scriptures and in Personal Experience. He wrote this in 1910. That's a long title. You can't do titles like that today. Here's what he says. Here's a quote. He says, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of grace and supplication in Zechariah 12.10. And he quotes the verse. And I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they shall look unto me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for his firstborn. Here's what he says. The phrase, the spirit of grace and supplication, in this passage is beyond a doubt a name of the Holy Spirit. The name spirit of grace we have already had under the preceding head but here, there is a further thought of that operation of grace that leads us to pray intensely. The Holy Spirit is so called because it is he that teaches to pray because all true prayer is in the spirit. And he references Jude 20. Now, keep in mind, and I'm not saying this to boast or anything. This is how good the Lord is. This is all. I, this is the last thing I found. I came to these conclusions before I found this. And I thought, wow, this is crazy because this is what I just said. And I don't got the education that these dudes got. I'm an ex-gangster. So I kept reading. He says, the Holy Spirit is so called this because he teaches prayer. Right there. We of ourselves know not how to pray as we ought, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit of intercession to make intercession for us with groanings which we cannot be uttered and lead us out in prayer in according to the will of God. The secret of all true and effective praying is knowing the Holy Spirit as the spirit of grace and of supplication. So he's connecting the dots to what I said. And this dude had major influence. Major influence. But there's another person who's even a greater heavyweight than him. Some of you wouldn't know this. Some of you would know this. I know Dr. Lee would. He knows everybody. Louis Burkhoff wrote a systematic theology that I would say was probably the most, one of the most dominant systematic theologies in the 20th century. Popular, I, I read through his systematic theology, loved it. A lot of people thought it's a little bit wooden, a little bit. And then Wayne Gruden wrote his systematic theology, and that became more popular because it was more accessible. It was an easier read. 
But Lewis Burkhoff, systematic theology, heavyweight. This is a heavyweight dude. Here's what he says. He says this. In the third place, the word grace is used to designate the favor of God as it is manifested in the application of the work of redemption by the Holy Spirit. It is applied to the pardon which we receive in justification, a pardon freely given by God. But in, in addition to that, it is also a comprehensive name for all the gifts of the grace of God, the blessings of salvation, and the spiritual graces which we wrought in the hearts and lives of believers through the operation of the Holy Spirit. So this is what he's saying. Grace isn't an attribute because it's where attributes come from. He's saying that grace is a one-size-fits-all name for attributes. So when we say unmerited favor, that means forgiveness, love, peace, all these things. That's what we're saying. It's a one-size. We even use it as a one-size-fits-all. He's saying the same thing. Grace is not an attribute because it is where all the attributes come from. So all the attributes come from the grace of God. There's no love without the grace of God. There's no mercy without the grace of God. There's no forgiveness without the grace of God, right? This is what he's saying. But then he says this. Moreover, there are clear indications of the fact that it is not merely a passive quality, but also an active force, a power, something that labors. In this sense, the word, it is, in this sense of the word, it is something like a synonym for the Holy Spirit. So that there is little difference between full of the Holy Spirit in Acts 6-5 and full of grace and power in Acts 6-8. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10-29. It is especially in connection with the teachings of Scripture, respecting the application of the grace of God to the sinner by the Holy Spirit that the doctrine of grace was developed in the church. Here's what he's saying. The grace of God is synonymous with the spirit of God. That's why he said there's no difference in saying Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit in Acts 6-5, and then he was also full of grace and power. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. He says that's one and the same thing, because the spirit is the grace of God. So when you're full of the spirit, you're full of the grace of God. This is a heavyweight theologian. If you don't believe me, ask Dr. Lee. Louis Burkhoff was a big dog. Grace is not an attribute. Grace is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the word of God. The Holy Spirit is the grace of God. This is why we cannot use grace as if it frees us from doing things. Because what we're saying is the Holy Spirit does not care if we don't go as hard as we should as believers. Be careful how you use the grace of God because many use it to say, I don't have to do stuff because there's grace. What you're saying is, I don't have to do this because the Holy Spirit is not tripping. Be careful how you use grace because if I'm right, a lot of us are wrong in the way we use them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that all you got, Pastor Kurt? <laughs> nope. I, 
told you I got receipts. If I'm wrong, I'm going to at least show you why I think I'm right. I may be wrong. I could be wrong. I could get there and the Lord be like, nah, you, 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 you was wilding. We was all sitting on the throne together. I'm like, One big throne. Can I sit up there, Lord? Nah, you can't sit up here, bro. We got a joint for you right there. All right, fifth observation, all right? Y'all got, I'm feeling good today. Warren got me hyped. This is Warren's new announcements every time. Because he got me hyped. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start hooping. Ha, and God said, ha, and the Lord came through. Ha. Y'all got me, I'm, I'm holding back. Y'all don't realize what's happening right now. There's grace on my life right now. All right, fifth observation. Fifth observation of why I believe the grace of God is the spirit of God and not just an attribute of God. Here's the fifth observation. The names of God in the Bible. The names of God in the Bible. So in the Bible, various names of God are used, each reflecting different aspects of his person. Okay? Throughout the Bible, names of God always describe who he is by what he does. Right? Like we use names as like four, like we, we think Jesus Christ, first name, last name, right? That's how we think Jesus Christ. Christ ain't his last name. It's a designation, right? God doesn't have formal names. It's not like me. Like my, like, like we, it doesn't work like that. Like God's names are always who he is and what he does. We use names differently. Like my name means tiny bear. I didn't live up to my name. All right. Let's look at some of the names of God in the Old Testament, right? This is the names of God in the Old Testament. Okay, Yahweh, right? I'm not going to list the verses because of time, because we have one more thing. I've saved the, the most theological thing for last. So Yahweh, right? Name for God. Elohim, name for God. El Shaddai, right? God Almighty. Adonai, Lord. Jehovah Jireh was what? Provider, right? See the names or what he does. He doesn't just have a name. It's like, my name is what I do, right? Jehovah Rapha, right? The Lord heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd, right? You go down this list of names. You will not find just a formal name. Maybe I am. That's God's formal name. Who should I tell him I am? All caps, too, right? That happens all throughout the Old Testament. It's names of God are who he is and what he does. They're not just formal names, right? In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to by various names and titles, each highlighting different aspects of his ministry and identity. So he's Jesus, right? He's Christ, meaning anointed one. He's Lord, right? He's the son of God. He's son of man. He's the lamb of God. He's the light of the world. He's the king of the Jews. He's rabbi, teacher. He's the bread of life. He's the good shepherd. He's Alpha and Omega. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the vine. He's the bridegroom. And he's the new Adam. Bunch of names. All of these names are not formal names. Right? Emmanuel means what? God with us. Now you can call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And he'll look and be like, hey, what's going on, bro? But it means something. It means something. Our name, we just pick names that we like. But when God picks a name, it's what I do. 
It's who I am. This isn't just a name I like. This is a function of my personality, my character. This is who I am. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to by various names and titles, each emphasizing different aspects of his nature and role in the life of believers in the church. So we know him as the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Comforter or Helper, in the Greek, the paraclete, right? The Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Life, the Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation, the Spirit of Grace, the Spirit of Glory, Spirit of Adoption, Spirit of Holiness, Spirit of Power, Love, and Self-Control. Every one of these are not formal names. They're when God names himself, this is who I am because it's what I do. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace because it's who he is. And that's what he does. He gives us access to that grace. Grace is the name given to the Spirit for that reason. It's not given to the Father. It's not given to the Son. Jesus brought grace and truth because he ushered in the Spirit. Final observation. And this one is deep. I actually thought about doing this one first because of how deep this one is. But it's too late. The sixth observation for why the Spirit of God is the grace of God, is the way the Bible is organized. The way the Bible is organized. I'm not talking about Old Testament, New Testament. I'm not talking about uh, law, prophets, wisdom literature, uh, old, minor prophets, major prophets, gospels, acts, epistles, Pauline epistles, Petrine epistles, that's Peter, epistles, revelation. I'm not talking about like that. There's a way that the Bible is laid out from God's perspective that's different than how we normally think of the Bible. We think Old Testament, New Testament, 66 books. That's not the way the Bible's laid out from God's perspective. Here's what I said last week. I said this. What if the Bible, I didn't say it exactly like this, but I'm, I rephrased what I said to, to present. I said this. What if the Bible is laid out in a Trinitarian structure with each person of the Godhead and their interaction with humanity described. So God, meaning the Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity, what if they designed the Bible in such a way that each person of the Godhead would have specific involvement in the redemption of humanity and the overthrowing of the enemy? And each one emphasizing a particular theme. What if? I believe this to be true of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. I think the Bible is broken up into three acts that each inform the Trinity, where each one of them is the personal emphasis in each act, each one. So in act one is the Old Testament, and we, the person of God the Father, is the one on display predominantly. Acts two, the Gospels, and it's God the Son on display. Acts 3 is Acts through Jude, and God the Spirit is on display. 
All three are made known in each act, but the emphasis is on one person of the Trinity primarily. These three acts are how the Bible is laid out. So all three are involved in the redemption of humanity and the overthrowing of the enemy. All three of them. The, the themes kind of overlap, but they're a little bit dominant. There's a pattern to this in each theme. Here's the pattern in each theme that God laid out. Here's the pattern. Make sure that one person of the Trinity is the dominant emphasis in each theme. The one person, the dominant emphasis that is emphasized points to the other two. All right? Each person's job is to primarily glorify the one that was before it. Okay? Except Acts 1 because God was first and it was like, all right, so God is glorifying himself. We'll get back to that. So that's each person's job. But they also highlight the next person of the Trinity that's coming closer to the end of their, their emphasis. All right? Then the emphasis switches and focuses on the next person of the Trinity while still pointing to the other two. The theme from the previous act carries over to the next act for continuity, but then introduces a new thing. We'll get into what I mean by that. I'm just giving you the layout right now. I'll explain what I mean. And lastly, by doing this way, all three are equally important and all three share the same characteristics, proving each of them to be God. That is the structure of the Bible in each act. Act one, act two, act three. Act one, the Father, the Old Testament, Act 2, the Gospels, Act 3, Jude through, uh, 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 Acts through Jude. That's how the Bible's laid out. It's not just 66 books. It's three different acts where God is involved as the primary one so that everyone knows, oh, this is a Trinitarian reality here. All right, so let me prove this, all right? Acts 1, the Old Testament, the emphasis is on the person of the Father, most common to the Jews as Yahweh, most common to us as God. That's the dominant person of the Trinity in the Old Testament, is the Father. The second person of the Trinity makes an appearance, makes appearances primarily through the angel of the Lord, right? SSB core group, that's us, right? See y'all Wednesday. Right? So the second person of the, of the Trinity, the Son, he makes an appearance in Act 1 with the Father as the angel of the Lord, but he's also prophesied to be a human, right? So it's pointing. Act 1 is pointing to Act 2. It's not just me. Someone else is coming. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Up to this point in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, they had the angel of the Lord functioning and acting with the same authority as Yahweh, Right? They used to call this theologically the um, um, two powers in heaven, two powers. Old Testament theologians will talk about the two powers in heaven, all right? And they think the Father and the Son. But until Daniel 7, until Daniel 7, this other person of the Trinity was cloaked as the angel of the Lord. And then Daniel 7, we see this, verse 13 and 14. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. So there is the son of man, right? And, he, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we get glimpses of, we get prophecies of the second, but the act one is about the father. But he, ma he makes sure you know I'm pointing to the person of act two, the son, and I'm going to pour out the person in act three, the spirit. So it's act one, the father, but act two, the person, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit make appearances in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read the verses that say that. We know that. I'll just read one. I love these verses. Judges 14, 15 and six, uh, 5 and 6. It says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. I wish they had social media back then. This would have been wild to see. <laughs> then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I think tearing a young goat is hard. I don't know why they, they made it seem like you just tear a young goat and... I couldn't do that. Y'all could, we couldn't do that. We'd be all like, no, people are like, stop. Yeah. We'd be, it'd, be, it'd be problems. We wouldn't do it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't let you do that as a member of this church. It says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Don't make me laugh. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Rushed upon him. And he tore it in half. So the spirit makes... Multiple times you see the spirit, but the primary emphasis is on the father, not the son, not the spirit. It points to the son, points to the spirit, but the father is the primary emphasis in act one, right? And the father's job, the father's, what his theme is, is glory. He's reclaiming his glory. The glory was lost when Adam and Eve bit the fruit. The glory was lost. So he's reclaiming his glory throughout. And he does it in three different ways. But this is what he wants to be glorified. Listen to this. Because of time, I'm only going to read this one verse. Le Leviticus 10.3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said to me. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So act one is God reclaiming his glory primarily by establishing a group of people to follow him, which is Israel. That's how he reclaims his glory in Acts 1. In, in Act 1, not Acts 1, in Act 1, right? But then he introduces the person in Act 2 in different prophecies which we know about, and that's Jesus, right? Then we get to Act 2. I got to speed up because of time. I'm going I'm to hit everyone. Yeah, I got to speed up. But this is a crazy point. In Act 2, the Gospels, the emphasis is on the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, but there are appearances of the Father and the Spirit in Act 2, Right? We saw this in Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13 through 4.1. He says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I am pleased. So all three show up. Start, that's how Jesus' ministry starts, right there. All three show up. We're all here. 
We're all together, but this is about him. This is about him. It's about the son. It's about the son. And the emphasis of the son is truth. The emphasis of the son is about truth. And he's reclaiming the glory of God by demonstrating his authority over the other gods by defeating the power of sin. So in Act 1, God reclaims his glory by establishing a people that he will work through. Acts 2, Jesus reclaims the glory of God by establishing truth and declaring his authority over other gods by defeating the power of sin. The emphasis is the truth. That's his emphasis. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son and Father, full of grace and truth. John 14, 6. Remember Jesus said this? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we are well-versed on the Son. Well-versed. But remember, Act 2 is the Son. The Spirit shows up. The Father shows up a couple times. But it's mostly about him. He's the primary person of the Trinity. But grace isn't mentioned. The spirit isn't mentioned there. Towards the end of Jesus' life is when he says, all right, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send a helper. Remember when I said Zechariah and Malachi were the last two books of the Old Testament? Because that's in Zechariah and Malachi is when God the Father prophesies about the spirit and the son that are coming. So at the end of the Act 1, God emphasizes the Son and the Spirit are coming, the people of Act 2 and 3. At the end of Jesus' life, the last night before the crucifixion, is when he says, John 14, 16, Mark 13, the Spirit's coming. The next person, the next act is about to begin, and that person, his emphasis, is the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help him. They didn't even want him to go. He said, no, 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 you understand. If I don't go, he doesn't come. He needs to come because he's the next act. He's the next emphasis. This is a Trinitarian decision. This is all three of us are doing this. I've done my part. So when Jesus said it is finished, it wasn't just our redemption. It was his role. It says it's finished. I did what I was supposed to do. I'm done. Now let me come back and get them ready for act three, the spirit. This is how the Bible's laid out. I lie to you not, but I could be wrong. Check for yourself. But don't tell me I'm wrong because of how you feel. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Drink some, drink some uh, apple cider. <laughs> act three, act three is the spirit. Spirit shows up. And that's when the language of grace starts to come out of nowhere. Comes out of nowhere. And notice this, what I said about glorifying each other. This is what Jesus said at the end of his life, the last night before, about the spirit in Act 3. This is what he said. This is what he says. Right? He says this. I still have many things. This is John, John 16, verse 12. 12 through 15. He says this. When the spirit, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will glorify me, 
For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take. So he said, so Jesus said, I'm here to glorify the Father. He said, the Spirit's here to glorify me. And he used this language. He will not act on his own authority, right? Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 10 to Philip. When Philip said, show us the Father and that will be enough. Jesus was like, show us the Father? What do you mean? What do you mean show us the Father? You know why Jesus said that? You know why Philip said that? Because to him, to the Jews, act one was about the Father. Now, keep in mind that he'd been walking with Jesus for three years and saw him do all this stuff. And he said, show us the father and that will be enough. Because to the Jews, act one was about Yahweh, the father. Jesus was trying to say, yes, but he was pointing to me, the son. So Jesus says this in response to Philip, uh, John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am from that the father is that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak. On my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Remember what he said about the Spirit? He does not speak on his own authority. You hear what he said about himself? I do not speak on my own authority. He's pointing to the next. Each one is doing the same thing. Going to the next, pointing to the next, on to the next one. It's the pattern of the way it works. Notice that Jesus, do you know he never defends that the Spirit is in him? He never defends that. Jesus never defends, like, the Spirit is in me. You know who said this? The Father is in me. It's the Father that's in me. Because of time, I can't elaborate on why I'm saying that. I just wanted that said. Once the Spirit comes in Acts 3, in Act 3, then it begins. Grace shows up. Grace shows up. Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Shows up. Colossians 1, 3 through 6, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the spirits, for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. So Jesus was about truth. The spirit comes and his primary emphasis is grace. The word of truth, which, you, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Once you get to Acts 3, now grace starts talking. Grace starts becoming the primary emphasis. And that's the Spirit's job in Act 2. In Act 3, the Spirit is to give God glory and demonstrate through grace his power over the enemy by removing the presence of sin from us. So Jesus removes the power of sin by truth. The spirit removes the presence of sin. So remember, Jesus was sinless so we could sin less. He's removing, that's the spirit's job. This is how the Trinity works. This is how the Bible is set up. This is the, and remember the pattern. Make sure that the one person is dominant, that one identity points to the other two, that each identifies with the one that was before. Highlight the other identities closer to the shift in emphasis. Switch focus while pointing to the other two. The theme from the previous act carries over for continuity, but then introduces a new theme. 
Father glory, Jesus truth, spirit grace. This is the way all three work. So in summary, the spirit of God is the grace of God. Why? Because in the New Testament, grace does what is only attributed to the spirit. Two, there are no places in scripture where an attribute is raised to the status of being on a throne. Three, grace is a relatively unknown concept until the book of Acts and the spirit is poured out. Four, some heavyweight theologians kind of agree with me. Five, the names of God in the Bible are always connected to who he is by what he does. And six, the Bible is organized in this particular way. Act one, the Old Testament, God the Father, theme, glory. Act two, God the Son, Jesus, theme, truth. Act three, God the Spirit, theme, grace. Here I stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just helping us. Even if I'm wrong in parts, I'm sure I am. I'm sure you'll tell me it was a good try. But there's a lot here, Lord. You know that I don't try to present things to be impressive because I'm not. None of us are. But I present what I believe to be true is from you. So, Father, where this is true, let it burn in our hearts and let it let us take the grace of God, your, your, your person, seriously. Let us use grace to empower us as it says to do and not release us from living empowered lives. Where this is true, Lord, may it burn on the hearts of my brothers and sisters in this room. And may we all grow together in your spirit, a.k.a. the grace of God. Help us to not take for granted any longer, which we are all guilty of. Help us to not presume upon your grace because we're not presuming upon an attribute. We're presuming upon your person. And help us, Lord, to take seriously, to take seriously our commitment to you because you took seriously your commitment to us. You came in all fully of yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. You showed up, and you showed out. Now give us your grace to show and prove. Lord, while I'm in error, please forgive me. You know it's not intentional. It's excitement trying to see your word in ways that I think are biblical. But where I'm not in error, let us move with it. Let us be encouraged by it. Let us use it to remind us to remember the future. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. Pastor Kurt, we got a couple questions, uh, but first, thank you for that, ser that sermon and then the work that you put in, and, and praise God for the insights that he's given you. That, that was nothing short of amazing to me, so yeah. thank you, brother. Thank you. As one of my best friends, I would expect you to say that, but thank you, bro. <laughs> no, 
No, thank you, bro. This was crazy to me, too. I was like, what in the this was not what I was thinking of. It's not what I was thinking of at all when I found this out. So. All right, we got a couple questions. Um, the first one, um, I think, is from something earlier that you mentioned in the sermon. It said, uh, this person is asking, <clears throat> if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one, um, then why do they all sit on separate thrones? Because they're three different persons. So they're one essence. They're of the same essence, but they're three different persons. And so, and I think that, that proves the authority of all three. I mean, sure, God could have made a big throne that they all sit in, but that would, that would probably be weird. Like, can you imagine going to heaven and they all just sitting beside each other, like on one big throne? My kids used to do that in the car. They got all sit beside each other. I just think that, I, I, you know, the Bible doesn't say why. I, I think that all three have thrones because thrones designate authority, right? When God sits on a throne, it's always like high and lifted up. It's God's thrones are different than the other thrones. So when, when we get there and we see that, all three, and they're on thrones. Well, to be clear, to be honest with you, there's only twice in Revelations that Jesus is said to be on the throne, to be honest. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 3. Those are the only two times that Jesus is mentioned as being on the throne. He's always beside it, but it's only in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 3, that it says, in the spirit of God, in the throne of God and of the Lamb. It doesn't, the rest of the times, it's not, it doesn't indicate Jesus is only on the throne in those two verses, to be honest, if you want to be technical. But um, I think it's because the thrones represent God's sovereign authority over everything, and having each person of the Trinity sit on the throne makes it clear that they all have the same authority, even though they're different in person and different in designated function. That's what I would say. I appreciate that answer. Good question. So this, this is a, a bit of a two-part question. This person is uh, asking... When you say you, would you say using the word mercy is the word people uh, want when referring to God's grace when they commit sin? And then he says, how are grace and mercy different? Well, well, I think when we talk about grace, we're really talking about mercy in that situation. Like mercy is never said to like uh, do anything but be applied to us from the standpoint of God having mercy on us from what we deserve. Like grace, mercy doesn't empower us. Mercy doesn't multiply in us. Mercy doesn't have a throne. Mercy doesn't, so mercy is an attribute. Mercy is an attribute of God, even love is. But all those flow out of grace. So I think if you, grace is the, so like if you were looking at a website, right? Let's go modern with it. Let's try to do a modern day parable. You go to a website, and at each of the top bar are links that you click on, right? And so there's many different things, but then when you click on grace, there's a drop-down menu. And when you click on grace, there's all the attributes of God dropped down underneath that. Mercy's in that drop-down menu, but grace is the main thing. That's the thing. You click on that, all these other things drop down. So I just think mercy is different mercy, but they all come from it. You don't get mercy unless you get grace, right? You don't get mercy because it is unmerited favor. It is those things, but it's a one size fits all. But, but grace, when it's given the name of God, it's a, it's a person and it's a function. So he does dispense grace to us, but he also is the grace of God. So this next question may put you on the spot uh, with memory here a little bit, but I'm going to ask it just in case. 
Um, this person is asking, would it make sense to say uh, that Act 4 is the Spirit's work in and through us? Act 4? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm assuming that this means Act 4, maybe post-Act 3 or... or well, Act 3 is that. Right. That's Act 3, to remove the presence of sin. That's what the Spirit does. So Galatians 5.17, right? For the flesh is against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, right? This so that you do not do the thing you want to do. So every genuine Christian in here, we all sin and we all sin willfully, right? But there's something about it that we're just not comfortable with, right? You sin and you're just like, man, I shouldn't have done that. And sometimes that'll stay with you for a long time. That conviction, like, I shouldn't have done that. I'm talking about with no consequences. Like, you ain't get caught, nobody knows. You just feel bad because that's the Spirit's work. It's removing sin. So when you give in to sin, it's like, Dad, this ain't the right thing to do because the Spirit is like, nah, don't do that. So that's, so what they describe as Act 4 is Act 3. Act 4 is revelation. That's what Act 4 is. That's that. That's a whole different monster. That's son, spirit, and everything. Beefing with the devil, and, 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 and it's a rap for him. Christmas rap, breakfast rap, all that. That's Act 4, right? That's why I said uh, Acts to Jew, because Revelation is its own monster. It's a good question, though. Next question is, uh, is the capital S uh, form of the Spirit used in the New Testament because they now had the Spirit and knew what it was versus uh, the Old Testament pointing to a, a lowercase, lowercase spirit um, in the Old Testament? Um, or is the capital S Spirit used in, in both testaments? Both. It's used in both. Yeah. Capital S. When I said it's, I wasn't talking about just the whole, capital S is in all of it, the whole Bible. Capital S is there. There are times when, like the spirit of grace, it wasn't capital S, but it's pointing to what the spirit's going to do, right? But I think that you will never see a capital S, and I think that's the writers of the Bible or the translators did that intentionally so we knew it wasn't just talking about the spirit that's in you or whatever, you know? A lot of people think what they're sensing in the spirit is capital S and it's lowercase s. That's what you're sensing in your spirit. Capital S might not be saying that at all. That's why capital S will tell some people, I don't know you. Because what you were sensing and what you said was the spirit was your spirit. And it takes, it takes effort to discern. It takes humility to discern which is which. Because often what I feel like I want to do may not be what God wants to do. That, you know, I think sometimes, I think often it's not what God wants to do. But he still works with that. So I think capital S is all over, old and new. All three acts. Old Testament Gospels, when it's mentioned in the Gospels, and then uh, Jude, Acts for Jude. Good questions, though. Really good questions. Kind of tied to that. It says, if the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace, then what does that say about grace? Do we receive grace through the Holy Spirit? 100%. Yeah. So the names of God are always what God does, who he is, by what he, God names himself by, he names who he is by what he does. Right. So if he's if it, grace is the spirit, then that means that that's who he is because he gives grace. He dispenses grace. That's his responsibility. The spirit. That's why it's the throne of grace, the spirit of grace. It's not Jesus isn't called the son of grace. You know, it's, that's not what it is. It's he has his own thing that he's doing. So grace is attributed to the spirit. So, yeah, it, the spirit. I think most theologians would agree with this, that the spirit dispenses the grace of God for whatever that means. I think we talk in these Christian colloquialisms. 
and you're supposed to understand what it means. I just think the spirit is the grace of God. I'm not afraid to say it because the Bible seems to say it. The Bible doesn't seem afraid to say it. Just because some theologians don't want to say it, I'm going to say it because the Bible says it. And so I think the grace of God is just like Jesus is the word of God. But every time word is mentioned, it doesn't mean Jesus, right? We know Jesus is the word of God, but every time word is mentioned, it doesn't mean Jesus. Every time grace is mentioned, it doesn't mean the spirit. But when you talk about what the spirit does, what grace does, you could swap out Holy Spirit, put it right there, and it would make perfect sense. Perfect sense. Are glory and truth on the same level of grace? And how can we apply what we learn today in our daily lives? Are glory and truth on the same? Say that again. Are glory and truth on Are the same? Are glory and truth on the same level as grace? Sure, 100%. So we're talking about God, right? God doesn't have higher or lower attributes, right? They're just different attributes that he says this. Okay, you're going to do this. You're going to be about this. I'm going to be about this. But all three of us are about all of them, right? So it's like this. It's like you have a job, right? If you're, you know, if you're a, a, a supervisor on your job, you can probably do everything that the people under you do, right? That's how you got the position. So you can do it. You can do this and do that and do this and do that. But you tell this person, no, I want you to you go back and search these files and pull that information up and do that. You handle this and you handle that. You could do all of it, but you, you give each person responsibilities God, the father could handle all of it. The son could handle it, but they said, no, this is my responsibility. This is what you do. This is how we glorify each other. And this is what we do. This is how we overthrow the enemy. That was God's wisdom. So, so glory and truth are absolutely 100% on the same page as grace. What I'm doing is not raising grace higher. We've made grace high because in the New Testament, this is how we talk in American Christianity. Grace, grace. But we use grace in a way that denigrates it more than it celebrates it. We celebrate grace, but we celebrate more that we're, we're not going to be... We're going to be forgiven for things that we're not doing, right? We need to start celebrating it as, wow, to be empowered by. So to answer the question, how do we be, how do we apply it? I think first, this is what I honestly believe. This might not apply to everyone, so don't get offended. If it doesn't apply to you, don't get offended, right? But if it does, then do this. I think if it applies to you, I think we need to ask for forgiveness to God for the way that we thought about grace. I think we need to just humbly say, Lord, please forgive me because I thought about grace and I've used it in a way that has released me from being diligent in my responsibilities. And some of us have used grace to allow ourselves to sin because there's grace and we're forgiven. And I think we need to humbly say, Lord, please forgive me for that. And please take that view of grace from me. And then start thinking about what grace is and treat it with the same respect you do Jesus. And recognize that grace is empowering me not to sin and trust that. So when you're tempted to sin, even if it's something you've done a lot, and you just, it's normal for you to give in because let's be honest, there's some sins that we enjoy. There's some, the pleasures of sin is a fundamental category in the Bible. There's like 10 verses in the Bible that call sin pleasurable. Let's just be honest. Some stuff we do because we enjoy it. It feels good to be bitter towards someone. Sex doesn't feel good only when you're in marriage. It feels good to lie to somebody because of fear and escape the consequences. It feels good to talk behind people's back. It feels good to be bitter and let people know there ain't nobody going to hurt me no more. It feels, all that stuff is pleasurable. We try to pretend like it's not, but there's something in it. So I think what we have to do is just be honest and say, Lord, please forgive me for the ways that I've used grace because I've treated your spirit with disrespect. And then start thinking of what grace actually does. If you're a member of this church, I'll put in the app the nine things that grace does and remember that so that when you're struggling with sin, 
don't think like, well, grace lets me give in. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff we're going to fall. It's, just re- it's unrealistic to think you're not going to sin again. It's just not. There's some churches that teach that. Don't go to those churches. Those people that say, you don't, no one's supposed to sin, didn't tell you what they did last night. Right. So uh, what, what, it's inevitable, but we shouldn't treat it like it's okay. It's excusable. Because it's inevitable, it's not excusable. We should still fight and go after it. And I think we've all done it to my shame. I've asked the Lord for forgiveness a lot this last two weeks. Because I, I would have never got up here and taught that, but I think in, in functionality, I'm a pilot like that. Focusing on this area. I'm growing in this, so I'm not really being diligent over here because there's grace over here. You know, when Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, you know what he said to them? He said, woe to you Pharisees. He said, you tithe mint, rue, and cumin, cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and righteousness. He said, you should have done all of them. I don't want to stand before God and be like, yeah, bro, you grew here, but you neglected the grace over here. You should have grown over here, too. I think all of us need to humble ourselves. Most of them, maybe not all of us. If that's not you, praise God for you that you haven't done that. I know I've done it, but I'm committed to keeping it in the forefront of my mind so that I do it less and less and less. So that's how I think we should apply it. Well said, brother. Appreciate that. Appreciate that answer. Uh, Next question. If there are seven spirits of God, does that mean the Holy Spirit is the highest? (laughs) I mean, I I didn't laugh because the question is dumb. I laugh because that's a wild thought. Not from the person, but just thinking about that. Seven just means perfect. doesn't mean anything more than just perfect. It's just saying the perfect spirit of God is present. Someone describes seven horns or seven eyes or seven. It's just perfect in strength, perfect in wisdom, perfect. That's all it means. Seven doesn't mean anything. The spirit is not higher at all. They're all God, but they have different roles. They actually have some servient roles in many ways. People get offended like, no, don't, don't say Jesus the son is different because that, we don't know how it works. Theologians get mad if you say Jesus is the eternal son of God, okay? Maybe he isn't, but the way he's presented to us is the son of God. So I don't think it's heretical to think he's, because I don't think it means he's less than the father. That's not, two things can be true at once, right? You could like, not like mayonnaise, but like sandwiches, right? I don't like mayonnaise, but I love sandwiches. Two things can be true at once. Jesus could be the son of God, but not equal to the father. I don't, and like we, I know how it works. I mean, my son isn't equal to me, of course, but that's not how the way God sees it. But I'm, I'm in the weeds somewhere. I'm in the theological weeds. Never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. I'm fired up. I'm ready to watch the Redskins lose <laughs> and be okay with it. I'm going to be okay with it today. I'm fired up. Warren got me fired up. Like I said. Knowing how powerful the grace of God is working in us, how should we apply this to our conviction to grow to be more like God? I think we should live like we have confidence that God is changing us and can change us. That's what I think. I think we should live with confidence that God is growing us and stop making excuses and stop looking to worldly slogans and worldly people to tell us how to be Christians. I know Christians that be looking to like, like I'm going to be honest, I'm just going to say this. This means this is no Bible and this isn't a, maybe not even apply to our church, but I remember watching like all this red pill stuff and watching all these people be like looking at like these guys fresh and fit and Andrew Tate and all this stuff and all these Christians are like Getting there, taking their cues from them. Andrew Tate is going to hell if he doesn't believe in you. That dude is a Muslim. He may say some helpful things, but like you don't take your cues from these people. I watch these people take their cues from celebrities 
What you crying for the Taylor Swift concert? Watch the girl, you know, go watch him and then go home. What you up there crying? Oh my gosh. People just idolizing the world. I think we idolize the world too. This is why I think, this is why I honestly believe the Lord is exposing all this stuff. He said, look at all the people you worship. I'm going to show you who they worship. I'm going to show you who these people worship. They worship all these people. You worship these people, these celebrities, they worship the devil. I'm going to expose all this so you can see, so my people can be like, you know what? Let me step back from these folks, man. They ain't saying that. They talking about stuff that has no eternal value. We got to evaluate if things have eternal value. So I think, I think we should take seriously that the grace of God is in us and wants us to grow, and we have to live in light of that confidence. Everyone in this room who is a genuine believer lives with the faith that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Even though you know you sin willfully against God, you believe when you die, you're going to heaven, right? So why can't we believe that while we live, that the grace empowers us to live like we're going to heaven? How do we have faith that we're going to die? That's the scariest thing to give somebody, oh, when you die, I'm going to heaven. That's a scary thing, to trust that you're going to go to heaven because of faith. Then why wouldn't we trust that the Spirit is in us and empowering us to not do this stuff? They'd be like, nah, I ain't doing this. So I know for me lately, I'll just be having these arguments with myself. I'm kidding you not. I'm just, I'm just, I'm turning into a crazy man. I don't care. I'll have stuff pop in my head. I'll be like, man, be quiet, man. You ain't the grace. You ain't the spirit of the Lord. Stop talking to me, man. I said just like that. I'm like, stop talking to me, bro. You're not this, you're not the voice of the Lord. Don't talk to me. I kid you not. I say that to myself multiple times. Somebody, someone will pop in my head, like, man, get away from me, bro. I know you're not the voice of the Lord. Stop talking to me, bro. Or you, oh, I'll say that you can keep telling me that all you want, but I ain't giving in. I kid you not. Doesn't mean I'm flawless, no, but I do that. I do it all the time. And them joints be going away. I kid you not. I'd be like, man, stop talking to me, bro. I don't want to hear that. You're not, the, you're not the voice of the Lord. Don't tell me that. I don't believe you. And I'll just be like, Lord, you know how you made me, and you know how I know when you're talking. So I don't believe that voice at all. If that's you, then, you know, let me know that that's you, because I don't believe that at all. I do it all the time. Like, I'm not, a, I mean, we got to do whatever you got to do to make it. It's not sinful. Do whatever you got. You don't got to be like me. I'm just crazy. Don't be like me if you don't got If you quiet, I don't want to do that. I ain't saying do that. That's just what I do. I'll tell myself, man, be quiet, bro. That's not dope. You ain't the voice of the Lord. Stop talking to me. You, you can say that all you want. I ain't doing it. Keep, do, keep telling me that. I ain't doing it. And that joint just goes away. So I think we have to have confidence. I think there are times, even as a pastor, man, I just like confidence sometimes. You know God wants you to grow, but it's all. That's why I say, look. Let's stop trying to grow all over the place. What fruits of the spirit am I trying to grow in? What beatitude? And put my thoughts, actions, and words in that. Because I at least know this is what God commands. So much of our obedience is just nebulous. All right, I'm going to stop doing this because of what? Because I guess I'm a Christian. Like, man, nah. I'm going to stop doing this because I want to grow in the spirit of faithfulness, and this isn't faithfulness to me. I'm going to stop doing this because I need to be more self-controlled, and this lacks self-control. I'm going to stop doing it. That's what I, that's what we, I think we got to do that. I think we got to do that because it attaches our obedience to the scriptures rather than just to an idea. Like, I'm not trying to be faithful because of what this dude said on YouTube. I don't care how many followers he has. I don't know who he's really following. So anyway, subscribe to my YouTube channel, though. Like and subscribe to the channel. I'm your pastor. You know me. Like and subscribe to the channel. Kirk Kennedy's corner. <laughs> Told y'all Warren got me fired up. Well said, brother. There was a second part to this question. It said, what if you feel like you are plateauing in your growth? 
in the fruits of the spirit and the beatitudes? How do we war against that? You keep going. I think I don't think there's a Christian alive that's not going to plateau because you can't sustain that. And I think honestly, when you if you're always plateauing, that you can't appreciate what it's like to not feel that grace. Right. Like when you're when you're in a, a tough place and it's hard to read, hard to pray, it's hard to. But you keep believing and fight through it. And, you, you know, we're always trying to change our circle. Like, I got to get out of how I feel. I'm lonely. I got to stop feeling lonely. Um, so we'll make decisions to do things because I'm, I'm, I'm depressed, so I got to do this. We're always trying to get out of something. Sometimes it's just like, you know what, Lord? I can't change. How do I glorify you while I'm depressed? What does it look like to glorify you right now while I'm hurting? What does it look like to glorify? We don't, we, so I think we just, we're always trying to get out of something rather than, and we're always trying to change what's happening. And God often says, nah, fam, I'm trying to change you. So I'm letting this happen. So you press in, you do that. So I, I just think we need to have, I think, I don't know, everyone's different. Have conversations with yourself. Journal, I don't journal. I don't like journaling. I'm not a journal. I, I'd freestyle. I'll, I'd rather just freestyle a rap about how I'm feeling. But like if you journal, then journal. But go back, be faithful to that. Go back to that journal. Whatever you do, like, but do it in connection with believing that the Lord wants you to grow, not trying to justify why you don't have to grow. That's so much of Christianity today, and there are some of us that have been walking with the Lord for a long time and disappointed with where we are. And to some degree, we're always going to be disappointed with where we are because the more you honor the Lord, the more you realize how amazing he is. And you're just like, remember when Peter was like, man, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You can't get next to holiness and be cleaner. It ain't going to happen. I think a sign of growing in maturity is that you realize how more sinful you are, not that you're committing more sin. Right? I think people be thinking because of grace they can commit more sin. It's like, nah, Slim, you're just more aware of how your sinfulness because you're getting closer to the Lord. But it takes work. If you, you want to just read and pray for 35, 40 minutes a day and then expect to be the light of the world, be singing and worshiping and sharing the gospel, Michael Jackson said it best, beat it. It's not going to happen. You, you, you're going to have to press in more to really grow. And there's going to have to be some, I mean, what is, what is the gospel message? If anyone would come out to me, he must first what? Many of us are not denying ourselves. And I'm, I'm included, to my shame, to my shame. We want a gospel that says, I don't have to deny myself, and I, can, I don't have to take up my cross when it's too heavy, but I want to follow Jesus. And much of where many of us are is not because the gospel isn't working. It's because God's not going to force you to obey him. But we just don't feel like denying ourselves. We'd rather complain about being told. Judge the people who tell you to do it. Be self-righteous or focus on that. If we're not denying ourselves and taking up our cross, then we're not following Jesus. So the question to grow is, what areas do you think the Lord needs you to deny yourself? And denying yourself is going to hurt. It's going to hurt. It's going to cost. It's going to cost you not being in the know of some things, not being in the, I'm focusing on pure and heart, pure and heart as a beatitude. Man, this is stuff I'm like, wow. I don't even, I look on my YouTube feed, I'm like, I don't even want to watch any of these videos. They all make me feel like I'm not going to be pure heart if I click on the thumbnail. Lately, I've been like, dad, Lord, you're going to have me out here just like back to just reading. I don't even know if I can watch stuff because it's just like, uh, <laughs> you know how you just be like you watch it, you be like, Dad, what is? Ugh. I just be feeling like I'm telling my sons, like I just feel grossed out after watching stuff for a couple of hours. Like, man, 
So I just think it's, it's going to cost. You're going to make decisions that cost. And, and you might even cost you some relationships. But we lay up our treasure in heaven, remember? We remember the future. We're not living for the gratification of today. Tomorrow's not promised, but that day is. That's the future we're living for. So be faithful, do what you can, but have confidence. Colossians 1, it says bearing fruit in every work. So it believes that you're supposed to. As a Christian, you're supposed to believe you're going to make progress. Many of us be justifying why we don't. And I just think, ah, them days is over. Leave that in 2023. In 2024, let's be on something different, for real. I'm trying to be. If anybody, if y'all want to join me, cool. If y'all don't, then I'll do the best I can. And when you stand before the Lord, he'll ask you why didn't you. But I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to be. I've been playing around too long with this stuff. I'm trying to be there. So, Amen. Me too, brother. Me too. We got two more questions. All right. Um, this question is, is why, why do you say the spirit stops at Jude uh, as opposed to like Re Revelation? Because I think Revelation is just a different literature. It's a different work. It's, a, it's prophetic language. When I say that, I don't mean the spirit stops at Jude. I mean the emphasis of the spirit and grace, all that stuff is, because is, grace isn't in Revelation a lot either. To be honest, the word grace isn't in Revelation that often. So when I say that, I don't mean the spirit stops at Jude. I just mean the emphasis of the spirit, I think kind of when you get to 1 John, I think, because 2 John and 3 John, I don't remember there being a lot of work. Those are specific letters to people that I don't remember grace being, I, can, I could be wrong, but so I just stop it before Revelation, because that's the third act to me, when the spirit comes and acts, and then Jew. Revelation is, all right, end times literature, prophetic symbolism, all that stuff. So it's just a different, it's more about the literature, it's, it's a different emphasis in literature, that's why. Gotcha. Last question. So this is, I'm going to read this for you, and then we can kind of parse it out how you will. Um, so essentially what, what you just taught, this means ultimately grace isn't the understanding of God when we don't pursue righteousness and obedience as aggressively as we should, but it's the opposite. Grace is the actual power uh, and mechanism through which we push ourselves to, to obey. Is, is that accurate? Yes, but I would say this. It's not wrong to know that grace does forgive us for not meeting the standard. That's true, though, right? We're not, no not going to obey God. Listen, <laughs> so two commandments, right? What are the two commandments that Jesus laid out? Two commandments. Okay, a room full of Christians. What are the two commandments again? <laughs> Some of us back there singing Keep Sweat. <laughs> what are the two commandments again? Love yourself. Do you, do you do those every day fully? None of us do. So we are always in a perpetual state of sin against the Lord, which means at any moment we could go to hell because we're always sinning against the Lord. Now, how many of you actually ask God for forgiveness for not doing those things? Probably almost none of you. So there are sins that we are committing consistently, and we don't even ask God for forgiveness for, but we believe we're going to go to heaven when we die. That's the grace of God. Because we deserve to go to hell, not because we're, we don't cheat on our taxes or we don't, take, we don't steal uh, staplers from our office. No, we deserve to go to hell simply because we just can't 
keep even two commandments. We can't do them. We can do them sometimes. There are moments where you feel like, no, I love the Lord with everything. I just want to. Then there are moments where I love my, actually, now, we don't ever love our neighbors as ourselves, for real. Unless you consider your pets. People be loving their pets like crazy. And be hating people, right? Your cat doesn't even know what's going on. Two commandments we never keep, always in a perpetual state of sinning against God. But almost all of us who are genuine, all of us who are genuine believers are still going to make it because that's grace. So I don't think it's wrong to think that grace forgives us for not keeping the standard. What I think is wrong, what I think is wrong is leaning on that. It's acting like that is the way to view grace rather than no, that's a part of it 100%. I mean, if we could fulfill the law, if we could obey perfectly, Jesus didn't have to come. So there's no way. I mean, I, that part is real. It's why do we emphasize that part, though? That's what the question. It's like, no, let's lean on, okay, yeah, we're forgiven when we feel. That's 1 John 2, 1. Little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, what? We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, right? That's the point. I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. But when you sin, you have an advocate. But don't lean on the fact that you have an advocate so that you can sin. It's like, I'm writing this to you so that what? You don't sin. Which means, okay, fight against it. But when you fail, you're good. You're forgiven. God knows that you're trying. We get that. He, he, that's what it is. Oh, the day I was born. Oh, God, I mean, don't, told you, don't play with me today. I'm fired up. I'll get in that bad to the bone. Some of us need to be bad to the bone of grace. That's it? That's it. All right, let's, 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 let's honor the Lord. Let's thank the Lord for the grace that he's given us. And again, I stand by it. I think Jesus is the word of God, the spirit is the grace of God, and we have an opportunity to be obedient to both. If you are not a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, this is the only part of today's service that we'd ask you not to participate in, only because Jesus said that this is to be for those who remember him, and you can't remember him if you don't really believe in him. But no shame, there would have been a Sunday where I couldn't have done this. No shame for you. But I would ask that if you're not a believer and you don't participate in this, come talk to me or anybody else that you, just, if you have questions, would love to answer. Then the game doesn't start till 4.30, so I can be here for a little bit. So if you have questions, come. And I'd love to talk to you. But for those of us that do believe, man, let's enjoy this. Let's not make this always about how, how sad we feel, but how, how, how grace-filled we are, right? There is a, there's a reality that the spirit of grace is in us, because the second person, the son of God, died for us. And so now we get to remember that and live in light of that reality. So, Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for, your, we thank you for the father coming and the son coming and the spirit coming for each act of the word. We thank you for the glory, for the, for the truth and for grace. We thank you that, that Jesus crushed the power of sin by dying on the cross, by being punished for it. And that you sent the spirit to remove the presence of sin as we repent and live lives that are less sinful. We're not as comfortable as we were. We're not looking forward to sin as we used to. We thank you for that. And I pray that as we remember that sacrifice, we remember it. We, we today celebrate that as we do each Sunday by eating and drinking this. So, Lord, be glorified as we eat this. And, Father, I pray that. You sent the son. All this was laid out perfectly by you. I pray that it would encourage us that, that the son whom you sent, who gave his blood to die for us, 
is the reason why your spirit is now in us and that we think of the grace of God because your spirit is the grace that pervades in us. So may we drink this to glorify you today. Father, I pray that no one in this room who is encouraged by today would be so encouraged that all they do is just think about what they heard. That's not the point of these messages, and it's not a good application of your word of grace. May we be encouraged to think, pray, ask, and act. Your, your, your spirit is in us, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Lord, we have allowed that, not always intentionally and not even sometimes as aware of it as we should be, but we've allowed that to be the reason why we don't have to go as hard as we should. Sometimes, Lord, I think we're just afraid to do it. We're afraid of what it would look like if we really just press in and obey you. We're afraid of how bored we'll be if we cut off our social media stuff. We're afraid of how lonely we'll be if we don't pursue ungodly relationships. We're, we're just afraid. Lord, let your grace empower us. It is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing reality, and it's an honor to have your spirit residing in us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Help us to stay away from the ways that the world views success and, and faith and love and help us to press into the way that you describe it for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys like crazy, and welcome to 2024.